Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. And this week, we're joined by a special guest, Rachel Ferguson. Rachel is director of the Center for Free Enterprise and assistant dean and professor of business ethics in the College of Business at Concordia University, Chicago, and an affiliate scholar here at the Acton Institute. She is the co-author with Marcus Witcher of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, Hope, Heartbreak, and the Promise of America. She's also a board member for the Freedom Center of Missouri, Faith Ascent Ministries, and Love the Lou, and a founding member of Gateway to Flourishing. She received her PhD in philosophy from St. Louis University in 2009. She's also the author of the essay, Saving St. Louis One Block at a Time, from the fall 2023 issue of our magazine, Religion and Liberty, published online today at acton.org. RNL is available at select Barnes and Noble and Books a Million stores across the country, but you can save the time and trouble by subscribing to get our beautiful magazine in your mailbox four times per year for only $29.99. We'll include the link to where you can subscribe in the show notes for today's episode, along with the link to Rachel's essay. This week, we'll discuss the war in Israel and the attacks by Hamas in that country over the weekend. But first, we want to go to St. Louis and Rachel's essay on saving St. Louis one block at a time. Uh, so, Rachel, I have some familiarity with St. Louis, having grown up in Belleville, Illinois, just across the Mississippi River from there. Uh, but for people who aren't really familiar with the city of St. Louis beyond, say, you know, maybe Anheuser-Busch or the St. Louis Cardinals— um, set the scene for people. Tell people about St. Louis. Um, of course, you know, what's great about the city of St. Louis in your eyes, but also some of the problems that the city ha- faces now and has been facing uh, really for decades. And then we'll dive into in your essay some of the things that are being done to to help those issues. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm a St. Louisan born and bred, which is a little unusual for an academic to still be living in the city. Uh, where I was born. I do work in Chicago, but I go back and forth. And St. Louis was a river town. It was a very important spot, you know, in terms of trade on the river. And so, you know, 100 years ago is one of our major cities. And you had a million people in the city of St. Louis. And they actually separated governmentally from the county because the county people were the hicks, right? Um, You know, back then. (laughs) But what has happened is um, what has happened, of course, in a lot of major cities in the United States, um, and that is the emptying out of the inner city. So now we have under 300,000 people within the city boundaries. Uh, the county is flourishing. Beautiful um, new financial district over the county line in an area called Clayton. And St. Charles, which is near St. Louis, is also a, a very, very popular destination. It's a great place for startups. Lots of interesting, cool neighborhoods that are very unique based on the different immigrant groups that have come and over the years and things like that. And so it's a wonderful place to live. But within the city lines, you have a few spots of amazing thriving, like around St. Louis University and places like that. And then you have just almost empty neighborhoods, which, of course, draws in a lot of really dangerous behavior. Um, it's it's actually I, it's something about poverty that I never thought much about is how having empty houses and having it be sort of empty of population can increase the crime and the danger that's happening there. Uh, St. Louis is now second to New Orleans uh, in terms of our murder rate, and oftentimes we're first, depending on the year. And so certain neighborhoods are very dangerous. Oftentimes when people want to come to St. Louis and start businesses, they're too scared um, to do so because of things like that. And you want to say, well, it depends where you are, right? Some places are very dangerous, some places are not. And you can you can be quite safe in St. Louis. But um, in the piece, I did focus on one of our toughest areas, North St. Louis, which has some of the highest crime rates and um, and is the most destabilized in terms of unemployment, high crime, 
empty homes, et cetera. And so, uh, yeah, that's the situation that we're dealing with now is a highly destabilized city that is uh, really going backwards when it comes to uh, some of the goals that you have for any any good good society. Well, I, one of the things I think of when I think of North St. Louis is uh, Pruitt-Igo, which was this massive housing, public housing complex that was built, I believe, in the 1950s, same architect as the World Trade Centers. And this was just kind of a, it just kind of helped set the scene for people. Um, this was ahead of time thought of as like, this is going to be the example for public housing for really the entire country. And within a few years, it has turned into, I think, what most people's perception of public housing is, that it's it's run down, that it's violent, that it's crime ridden. Um, and that area of North St. Louis, where pruitt Igo used to stand, I think they raised all of the buildings in the 1970s. Um, yeah, it only took 18 years. To it only took 18 fall. years to completely fall apart, which yeah. is just kind of incredible. It is still just this kind of open area. Um, there, I think there's been a little bit of development there, but it is it is largely that kind of urban blight that you think of, of either nothingness and fields, which is always one of the amazing things to me, having lived on the south side of Chicago, or just the, you know, in a place where real estate is at such a premium. There is so much open area in different areas of the south side of Chicago and of North St. Louis as well, but the circumstances are prohibitive from anybody really investing or building there. So, Yeah, and, and can I just to jump on that a little bit? Um, you know, if, if you're familiar with my book, Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, one of the points I make in there is, I call it sort of the one, two, three, four, five punch. You know, the idea being that... Um, Black neighborhoods in many major cities suffered from a bunch of failed policies, things like Pruitt-Igo, things like redlining, but also the building of the highways, separation of black and white neighborhoods through the highways, also urban renewal, also failed welfare programs, uh, et cetera, right? And so you have all of these things happening together at a time when working class blacks were upwardly mobile. You know, you have an amazing fall in poverty between 1948 and 1966. And then, right, it kind of feels like right as people are finally coming out of that and all of the social capital they've built has has come to that that moment, you know, of freeing yourself economically, you have just terrible micromanaging social engineering federal projects come in and just absolutely crush that that growth, all maybe well-intentioned or some of it perhaps well-intentioned, but just, just absolutely terrible. And St. Louis is a very good example of that. We have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to examples of the kinds of terrible policies that went so wrong in many cities. So talk about what you address in your essay, which is the way that um, a lot of this work to alleviate those circumstances being targeted by single city blocks. So what tell us what is going on now in St. Louis that you profile in your piece? Yeah. So, you know, this whole conversation got started by guys like Bob Lupton and Brian Ficker, who were looking at what you might call toxic charity you know, ways of doing charity that are easy for us as middle and upper income people, uh, make us maybe feel good. You know, we have our coat drive or our canned food drive, but are not transformative for neighbors, particularly ones who are actually in destabilized neighborhoods. Not somebody who's maybe going through a temporary situation. Those things might be helpful in emergencies, but this is a chronic situation. This is a situation that has persisted for decades and gotten worse and worse. And so we need a totally different approach than the kind of approach you take in an emergency situation. And I've been really influenced by them and by my friend Lucas Rugley, who founded the organization Love the Lou, which is working on Enright Boulevard, is now on Taylor between MLK and Page in St. Louis. And the whole idea is that if you're really going to deal with poverty in a destabilized neighborhood, you have to be holistic, right? It has to be holistic. It can't be oh, I have this program that'll help you, you know, learn to balance your checkbook, or I have this program that'll help you get some food this week. That makes it a full-time job to be poor. You go from program to program to program, just making sure you survive till next Tuesday. But what if we really want transformation, we need to surround people. We need to make sure that we're walking through life with people through every difficulty that arises. People don't have, people in a destabilized neighborhood don't have one problem, they have 10, Right. And so maybe you can get a job, but now you need transportation. Maybe you got transportation, but now you don't know how to deal with the fact that your boss is being a jerk sometimes, right? And you need somebody to pray with you and, and, and hold your hand and walk through life with you in the ways that maybe you and I take for granted in our, in our social networks. 
And so um, it's a kind of network poverty. That's actually a term I use a lot. Um, I was just talking with the head of the Illinois Policy Institute in Chicago, and he was talking about, you know, the people who serve food on on food carts and how he said to them, you know, we can pass legislation to make this legal. You know, what? why aren't you guys doing that? They're like, we wouldn't know where to begin, right? And what did they have? They had network poverty. They didn't know how to get to that point. So you need groups like IPI who are who are coming alongside you and helping you write that legislation, things like that. And so when you look at Love the Lose model, you really see that they focused on one block, the, the block of Enright. They started by, Lucas started by really just gaining the trust of the neighbors, having block parties, spending time together, getting to know people. And that's a big deal because in destabilized neighborhoods, there's a lot of mistrust. And we see this in global economics as well. High trust societies really take off economically. Low trust societies really struggle. And so trust is the major issue to be addressed. And then he went on to start the community gardens. What does that mean? That means that you can be paid to do a job that you can see on your own street, not something five miles away, which might as well be Japan, you know, to many people. And I think that that's another thing I didn't understand about poverty is how isolated it is, that you can be in a four to six block area and have really never left. There are kids who live on Enright who hadn't ever gone to the arch and gone up in the arch. They can see it from their house, right? And so there's a strange kind of isolation there. And so it's in a way, you can't describe it quickly, you know, the, the model we're talking about, because what you're talking about is something that is very unique to each flock, that is totally tailored to the voices of the people there and what they, the vision that they have and that they see for their neighborhood, and that is addressing things as they arise, trauma, counseling, whatever it might need, whatever might need to happen. But the ultimate point is to sort of contrast it with that emergency help kind of toxic charity that you get. And instead, think about dignity. What is going to be dignifying to the um, neighbors that listens to their voice, listens to their vision, and empowers them to do what they want to do with their neighborhood, as opposed to coming in, as opposed to coming in with my own agenda and, uh, you know, just kind of dropping it on their heads, so to speak, in a superior sort of fashion. So that's the contrast that I try to draw on the piece. So... Uh, there's a lot to talk about, I think. It's a really uh, compelling essay. I would recommend it as a very hopeful essay as well, uh, showing that, you know, people don't just have to despair uh, when they look at, you know, impoverished and, and crime-ridden neighborhoods. Um, one thing that stuck out to me uh, that I'd love to hear you talk more about uh, is the idea of of finding the, the Josephs in the neighborhood. Um you know, for every statistic, there are two stories. There's the story the demographer wants to tell, and it's a true story. Uh, but they're usually looking at uh, the high numbers, right? So uh, our friend Anthony Bradley, our, our, our colleague here at Acton, he talks about uh, fatherlessness and all the bad statistics of, you know, kids who grow up in a home without a father, they're more likely to be in prison or addicted or die early or, you know, things like that. Um, and he has the percentages for all of that, and it's not wrong. Um but for every percentage, there's another one, right? So every 57% means there's a 43% uh, that don't qualify. Uh, for every 63%, there's a you know 37% that don't, you know, that's not their story. And it's interesting to me that that you found that th there's a key, uh, at least um, uh, sort of person uh, who basically is that that positive outlier, that minority person. And it's the sort of person that you could see having just a ton of potential. But if 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 they're stuck for too long, they they too would fall through the the cracks. So how how are they identified? What what role do you understand them playing in neighborhood stabilization? Um, and how how not only can we identify those people, or can people within those communities identify those people among them? But maybe how can there be more of them? Well, let me say it's not uncommon at all. And it's not actually hard to identify. Uh, usually there are people in the in a neighborhood who have always been sort of for the neighborhood. They've always been trying. They've always been the person you could go to for help, you know. Um, and oftentimes their efforts, um, you know, they, they, they can struggle with hopelessness, right, because they don't have a lot of support. But they're not hard to find. Uh, usually you can point right to them. Oftentimes it's a matriarch. So in the piece, I talk about Miss Sharon. I talk about Miss Tawana. 
right? And these are women who have taken in other people's children, you know, the women who get the neighborhood together for the neighborhood watch program. Um, you know, it's it's they're doing everything that they can, uh, but they just don't have enough of a voice, right? They don't have enough support. And so one way to just draw that out is to support them, right? And and to take their advice. And so one of the stories I tell in the in the piece is about the way that Miss Sharon would really kind of slap Lucas on the hand every <laughs> once in a while. You know, Lucas would have an idea. He'd say, hey, we're going to bring a volunteer group down and clean up trash. And she'd say, we can clean up our own trash. Don't come down here and clean up our trash. She goes, what I need you to do is remove that porch where the drug dealers sit so they don't have any place to sit, right? Because she had the local knowledge. She knew what they really needed. And she knew that it would undermine their dignity to go around and a bunch of white people come down and pick up trash, right? Or the same with, you know, charging for the block party, right? You didn't want anybody to contribute. You wanted everything to be free. And she said, no, let us contribute, right? So having that local knowledge, having that understanding of the neighbor um, is what one of the things that's really important about Joseph's. But I think there are cases where you don't get a Joseph where you could have had one. And that happens with some of our young people who fall through the cracks. And so, you know, there are other examples, and I, I won't name names because uh, they're still uh, uh, young and may not want to be named, but there are kids that I know who, you know, were totally homeless at 11 years old. Uh, they had nowhere to go. And, um, you know, if, if they hadn't been taken under the wing, you know, of Lucas or allowed to live in someone else's house and, and plugged into good programs, uh, places even changed schools in some cases, you know, had to go to a different different school in order to do well. Uh, they may have become just like the next kid, you know, and yet uh, due to that intervention, they're the kind of kid that's coming back, mentoring the kids in the neighborhood, working for the organization, going to college, you know, really changing the trajectory of the neighborhood, and they become the next Joseph, right? And then another thing I want to say about Joseph's is that um, there's a level of spiritual advancement with some of these people that really um, needs to be acknowledged. I think there's an assumption that because somebody is poor, like you sometimes hear, like, they just need the gospel. You'll hear some in the circles, you'll hear people say that. And it's like, Lucas is like, my neighbors love Jesus. Like, that's not the issue, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we need much, much more than, well, the gospel is holistic. But, you know, that thin notion of the gospel, right? We need more than that. And what you find when you really dig down in these people's lives is there is a level of dealing with bitterness and unforgiveness and trauma that would just blow any of us away, you know, in, in terms of their spiritual connection to Jesus. And and so we have so much to learn from them. And there's a back and forth that goes on and where Lucas, and you can tell in his book, When the Sirens Stop, which I highly recommend, he hardly talks about himself. He talks about his neighbors, everything he learns from them, really about walking with the Lord and trusting the Lord. And so that network goes both ways. One might be professional networking, but the other way might be spiritual networks, right? What do we have to learn from people who've really suffered and had to lean on God uh, because they didn't have the comforts of this world uh, available, right? And so that's been a major, major lesson as well about these Josephs. Rachel, thank you again so much for this wonderful, <clears throat> wonderful piece. And there's there's a ton of angles here and and Dylan has brought out some of those. I want to bring out another because one of one of the challenges there are real very real uh, sort of structural challenges in terms of certain regions of the country where we talk about you know you know St. Louis has essentially been depopulated in a lot of ways. Um, this reminds me very much, I've got family connections in Saginaw, Michigan. In 1960, there were 100,000 people in Saginaw, Michigan. There are now 44,000 people. Um, when you are facing those sorts of realities, um, you have strange things that start happening. Like when somebody's elderly relative dies, they don't bother selling the house because it costs more money to sell the house than to just stop paying taxes on it and have the city deal with it eventually, which creates this terrible problem where you have this vacant property that, you know, can become, you know, a drug den, can become these sorts of things. Um, 
Genesee County Land Bank in Michigan um, tries to sort of basically buy up properties like this, demolish homes, try to sell them to neighbors, basically de-densify. This is something that happens in Detroit, too. When we're looking at strategies like neighborhood stabilization, what do you look for for in, in in a neighborhood that has struggles, that has challenges, but can be saved versus an area that it's just the, the, the realities of the population decline and the changes of just, of just, you know, of just, you know, you have entire sections of cities that are emptying out and it might be a mistake to try to stabilize that. There, there, there are some neighborhoods that they just live out their lives and they become farmland. They become a community garden. They become something else. I, I think an example of one of those municipalities where that kind of thing is happening, and unlike the stuff that Rachel is highlighting about areas of St. Louis, the local officials and county officials really don't have an idea of how to deal with it is just across the river in East St. Louis. Um, oh, but yeah. there is, uh, as it has been, as it has been told to me, my grandparents. Uh, my mom's side are from East St. Louis, born, raised in East St. Louis, worked in East St. Louis. It was a heavy industry area. And, you know, if you're looking for some kind of economic revitalization in East St. Louis, one of the problems you have to deal with is one of the typical avenues to get businesses to come and site in a place like that is you give them a whole lot of tax credits to incentivize them to come in. The city of East St. Louis can't afford that. But even if they could afford that, the amount of remediation that needs to be done on the ground because of all the heavy industry that existed there before makes it cost prohibitive beyond those initial concerns. So I think you you have that contrast just across the river in East St. Louis vis-a-vis the kind of things that um, Rachel's highlighting in in the piece that's happening in St. Louis? Yeah, I think it's really important question because, um, you know, I was just I was actually just talking about this the other day on, on Twitter. I was thinking about the concept of moral imagination, which is something that's just been on my mind a lot lately. Um, how can the the person with moral imagination make the useful and the good and the true and the beautiful coalesce? right? In ways that you might not anticipate. And so I think that's definitely what I'm calling on, you know, in a place like Enright, where you still have a decent enough population and uh, you still have people who are dedicated to the neighborhood and want to stay there and want to build. One of the things we've done is a a church has adopted uh, an old home and rehabbed it. And then that, and then Tawana now pays on that. She's only got a couple of years left and she'll own it. And that'll be an asset. Well, that's an area where home prices actually are going up a little bit, right? You're actually gaining an asset there. But what's the other side of moral imagination is knowing the limits of the possible, right? We're not talking about you being a utopian, you know, we, we, because that's that's a mistake too. Because if I proceed in a utopian way, then I end up expending my energy on something that's useless, right? Rather than expending it where it needs to go. And so I think that's a really fair question is how do we pick out the neighborhoods that I think are worth really investing into? And I think a big part of it does have to be, are the neighbors invested? You know, are are the people who are still there wanting to uh, rebuild this neighborhood? And that's what we had on Enright in spite of all the difficulties. We really had people there who were dedicated to the neighborhood. And, and that made a huge difference And the population hadn't quite gone down enough, you know, to get to the point you're talking about. But I agree with I agree with you that we can't just take, uh, you know, have, have a notion like, uh, you know, the kingdom of God on earth. Right. Like we're just going to fix everything. No, some things have to be left behind. And that's that's just there's no solutions, only trade offs. Right. That's just good, um, good, good economic way of thinking. Rachel, you'd mentioned earlier one of the concerns that people in these neighborhoods would have you know, it would be they, they have the local knowledge of like, you know, get the 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 porch with, um, you know, the drug dealers on it, you know, get get them out of the neighborhood and, and we can work and focus on some of the things you're highlighting in, in the piece for revitalization. What is the relationship like with law enforcement in a lot of these communities? I mean, people will remember uh, what happened with Michael Brown in Ferguson, um, which is something else for people to keep in mind uh, th- about the weirdness of St. Louis County, that there are these municipalities you hear about. There are all these little municipalities that are functionally still the St. Louis metro area, um, but there's just a ton of them in St. Louis County. Ferguson is one of those. 
and I remember thinking at the time that the narrative about like hands up, don't shoot for a lot of people in the local community, it wouldn't matter like the actual verifiable truth of that that we found out later in the report from the Obama Justice Department. Right. It was just that the the trust that existed and it needs to exist between citizens and law enforcement had eroded for so long in places like Ferguson, Missouri, where municipal budgets were based on a lot of um, police enforcement actions. Uh, citizens essentially see that the police see them as ATMs, that their only interactions are for license plate tags being expired or occupancy permit violations. And it's just ticky tacky, a little bit of money here, a little bit of money there. Uh, what is the relationship like with law enforcement? What work is being done to increase the trust that needs to exist between citizen and law enforcement if a lot of these problems of, of drug dealing, violence, gangs are going to be effectively addressed to make these communities safe, um, which they will need to be if they're going to be revitalized? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, a lot of conservatives like to um – like to quote the the polling that showed that 80% of uh, Black Americans want more or the same amount of police, um, not less, in their neighborhoods. And, and that's right. That That's what the polling shows. Um, and that was in 2020. Uh, you know, that, that was in that summer that that polling was done. So um, that's important. But what they often don't mention <laughs> when they quote that poll is that um, there was also polling about how they'd like to be treated by the police. And uh, so there's an awareness that we need enforcement. We need law enforcement, particularly in poor neighborhoods where most of the people are the victims, not the perpetrators of crime. But uh, people are treated in a very disrespectful way by the police. And so, um, you know, there was in that same poll, there was a, a I don't remember the exact numbers, but there was a, a strong majority saying we also like to be treated like human beings, you know. And so, um, so it's a really complicated question. I think that um, part of what happened on Enright that was so powerful is that the community reached out to the police themselves and they set up a plan for the neighborhood with the police. And that, uh, that was a lot of the matriarchs leading in that way. Uh, but I tell the sort of hilarious story about uh, Miss Sharon somehow finding the police chief's home phone number. I have no idea. No one knows how she did it, but she got his home cell number. And then if she went on the app and nobody came in five minutes, she would text the police chief and say, where are they? You know, And so that sense of accountability. But because of the neighborhood stabilization efforts going on, there was also a confidence on the side of the police that the neighborhood itself was dedicated to telling the truth and looking out, you know, looking out of the window and letting them know what was going on. And so there was a sense of reciprocity there where oftentimes there's a sense of um, challenge, right, between the neighborhood and the police. I don't want to tell them anything. Uh, you know, I don't want to cooperate, et cetera. And it can be incredibly frustrating. And so for me, I think that I'm the reason I always go back to neighborhood stabilization in a way when we talk about all of these really deep, complicated problems is because you have to start with the good. You have to start with the positive and then things start to snowball from there. Once the police saw what efforts were happening on the street, they were much more responsive. They were much more respectful. There was an actual personal relationship going on etc. Right. And the truth is, is that the street became just a very uncomfortable place for drug dealers to be. And so the drug dealers went to the next place. Right. And you might get you might say, well, OK, didn't you just shove them to a new place then? That doesn't exactly solve the problem of the drug dealers. And I want to say, yeah, for now, that's true. But without having a stabilized block, you can't expand that sense of stability. Right. And then you don't have those kids who are graduating high school. And you don't have those kids who are getting jobs and going to college and coming back to the neighborhood to mentor. So you need that good snowball effect happening before, you know, you can say, well, I've got the perfect policy, um, you know, solution, right, for this difficult problem. You need both, right? You need the, the bottom-up uh, decentralized solution happening on the ground so that your policy solution can actually be effective and can make a difference. And so, yes, I think, you know, in Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, I talk about all sorts of criminal justice reform ideas, 
I think we need to be creative. We need to bring our moral imaginations to that. We need to decriminalize a lot of things that are that are um, you know petty things and so forth. And so we have ideas, but all by itself, that's not a solution. It has to sort of meet in the middle with the good work that's being done on the ground by um, you know by neighborhood practitioners. So Rachel, when you mentioned folks going off. <laughs> attaining some level of personal success, career success, they go off to college and then they come back to the neighborhood. How often do you see that? Because one, one, of, one of those the questions, going back to Dylan's question about the Josephs is there's like a long running <clears throat> sort of tale of modern America. And you can look at like Theodore Dreiser's uh, uh, American Tragedy, which, you know, the, the the film adaptation of Place in the Sun is great. It's about someone who grows up in an embedded community whose mother is one of these strong matriarchs running a street ministry, addressing urban poverty. And then what is the tragedy is the tragedy as her son goes off. He becomes consumed with lust, with uh, superficial sort of uh, conceptions of success, and you know, you know, eventually, you know, it's a tragedy. It unfolds. I won't spoil the plot for you, but he's one of those people that could have been a Joseph and who wasn't. And it strikes me as that this is something that like is a big enough problem that you see it come up in early 20th century literature and is something that we see today. Um, what are some of the things that make it easier for folks to return to the community? What are some of the things that you see, um, the, you know, what are some of the dividends when you, when you have a program like Love the Lou? Does that, when you have an institution that, does it make it easier for people to do the right thing and to come back and contribute um, to that neighborhood's future? Yeah, that is such a great point. It is a huge struggle. There's a, you know, a tendency to want to get out. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of trauma living in a high crime area. And uh, if you are experiencing some success, sure. Yeah, the 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 idea is I'm going to go move to the suburbs and have it have an easier time, and and that's the struggle that Love the Lou does have. And so um, there are people who have come back. Um, I think that a lot of that has to do with the almost familial bonds that people have created over the you know over a decade that Love the Lou has been operating. Some of these kids met Lucas when they were 11, when they were 12 years old. They lived in his house for periods of time. And so that kind of thing can make a huge difference. But I will say this, and here's my message to the donors. You know, if you're out there as someone who wants to do good things in terms of poverty alleviation with your money and with your efforts, please think long term. Please think in terms of investing in something that's going to take time to come to fruition, something like Love the Lou, because what you need are people who are willing to, for instance, subsidize, um, you know, someone's rent who's willing to come back and mentor the younger kids, right? Because you do want to incentivize that, even if you can only keep them for five years, you know, that's a huge reinvestment in the community. And it, it, it puts the dream of a better life into the heart of the children that will be mentored by that, that graduate of the program. And so you need to understand that when you invest in an organization like Love the Lou, you're paying for a lot of staff. It's all overhead, right? You're not handing money out to recipients most of the time, right? You're paying for the people who are going to stay and serve and walk through life with the ones that are coming up. And so it's a totally different perspective for donors who sometimes are trained to look for big numbers and quick scalability right? And what can you do in one year? And it's like, forget that. It takes eight to 10 years to stabilize the block. You're investing in a small group of people in a highly geographically focused area, and you're looking for major life transformations. You're not looking for thousands of people served. You're looking for this person went to college and then came back and served for five years in the community or something like that, right? And so how can you invest in that? Because we do need to incentivize those, those graduates to come back. And, and work. We have seen that in Love the Lou. It's incredible. Some of the young people that have come back and are working with the organization now. Uh, it's very exciting. 
but yeah, I mean, it's very tempting also to, you know, ride off into the sunset. Um, and you still made a big difference in that one person's life. And so we're not angry with you if that's the decision you make. But we do try to incentivize um, people to come back and, and reinvest in the community. And it is a struggle. That's a that's a really important point. Well, Rachel, it is a uh, really fantastic piece, and we'll include a link to it in the show notes for everyone to check out. We encourage everyone uh, to read it and to become a subscriber to Religion and Liberty. So, uh, Rachel Ferguson, thanks so much for joining us uh, for the program this morning. We're going to let you go now and uh, delve into uh, dive into our second topic uh, of the day. But, Rachel, thanks so much for uh, sharing your perspective and your piece with us. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. Over the weekend, Hamas launched a surprise terrorist attack on Israel, uh, firing thousands of rockets at the country and sending hundreds of terrorist fighters into cities and towns in southern Israel. Hamas fighters killed hundreds of civilians, including women and children, and kidnapped more than 100 people, taking them back to Gaza as hostages. Israel has declared war on Hamas with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying Israel would destroy the group and, quote, take mighty vengeance for this black day. As of Monday morning, Israeli defense forces were still clearing parts of Israeli territory of terrorists, and the United States announced additional military assistance will be sent to Israel, and uh, the Ford Carrier Strike Group will sail to the eastern Mediterranean to be in a position to assist Israel if necessary. The attack came amid U.S.-brokered normalization talks between Saudi Arabia and Israel, which now may be at risk. The Saudi foreign ministry uh, called for de-escalation and suggested the war as the result of the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territory. That is a summary from uh, the morning dispatch email from the dispatch, which we'll put in the uh, show notes as well. Uh, the videos that one could see if you were on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it um, were pretty harrowing and I think do give a – you know, representation to exactly what it is that we're talking about here. We're talking about a state of war, but again, war with a terrorist organization based in the Gaza Strip that is not fighting in those traditional ways. Um, the absolutely chilling videos of people fleeing from a music festival that was taking place in, in southern Israel um, I think uh, up to 260 people are reported to be dead who were uh, attending that festival. Um, we do not know how many people have been taken hostage and taken back to the Gaza Strip. I believe I did read that there are at least uh, four Americans that we know of as of right now who are believed to be among them uh, as the single deadliest day since the uh, Yom Kippur War. And I believe uh, there's another great piece from uh, Noah Pollack at the Free Press who called this Israel's 9-11 uh, that we'll put in the show notes as well. I think that is worth a read. Um, but I, I, I throw it open to, to you for perspective on what transpired over the weekend after Largely, I'd say a decade of, you know, th there's a reality that Israel lives, lives with, um, which is having a lot of entities and organizations and governments hostile to their very existence being right on their borders. And the incredible technological advancement of something like the Iron Dome – which is the Israeli missile defense system, um, is really an incredible accomplishment. And uh, while you know the air raid sirens will go off and those uh, missiles will be intercepted by the Iron Dome technology, um, it has been a relatively safe, relatively safe and peaceful last decade or so for Israelis. Um, this certainly is a huge interruption to that and a reminder of the reality that faces the Jewish state on a daily basis. I mean, it's, it's always easier to destroy than to build. Um, this, this attack came as a surprise uh, to the Israelis. Um, and, you know, you're right. As far as the air defense, that technology has been working. But, I've, you know, obviously just the intelligence needed to prevent something like this was not there um, in this case. Um, it is uh, a reminder. Um, I, in situations like this, um, I just find it very, very tragic, um, and tragic in in so many 
ways on so many dimensions. Um, and I, I always think of uh, who I mentioned often on this podcast and still recommend. Uh, I think of uh, Kenneth Boulding, the economist and um, peace activist and theorist of the 20th century. Um, and he, he really highlighted how an absence of violence is not the same thing as peace. Um, we have never had peace um, in Israel, at least in my lifetime. I was born in 1984. Um, so we'll, we'll just say I've never known a time when there's been peace there in general in that region, um, but in particular between uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians. Um, you know, living in Gaza uh, under blockades where, you know, they are dependent upon those blockades being open for basic goods like food getting in. They have uh, a criminal thug government in Hamas uh, organization, um, you know, basically preying on the people's passions and anger and frustration. Um, the only positive, you know, marks these people have to boast of are things like taking hostages and having prisoner exchanges um, throughout their history. Um, that's not in any way to to justify this, but just say, you know, where is this coming from? I mean, someone on, on Facebook asked, you know, why in the world would Hamas do something like this? How could it possibly be in their self-interest? You know, what, how can you put yourself in that position and understand it? Um, and I don't know, I can't speak definitively, but it, it reminded me of uh, the Spike Lee film, Do the Right Thing, um, actually pretty relevant to the previous discussion, um, in which uh, I, I am going to have to spoil the end uh, to make my point. Um, but Spike Lee plays a guy, I believe, in, I want to say Chicago, but I can't, I can't say for sure. Urban neighborhood, um, there's a lot of crime. New York. Huh? New York. Is New oh, York. New York. Yeah. Okay, New York. Thank you. A um, lot of crime, uh, not a lot of support, and there ends up being a police-involved uh, killing, a needless one, uh, towards the end. And the people are so upset, they start to riot. Um, and they end up destroying this establishment that they've been hanging out at for the whole uh the whole movie, he knows the owners, uh, and you see Spike Lee's character, he, he plays a character in the movie, um, finally just giving in to the anger and throwing a rock and smashing the window and joining in, even though it's the wrong thing to do. And you, I don't know that there is, you know, an easy, oh, here's their strategy, and here's why they thought this would make sense. Uh, you have, again, this organization, it's an Islamist organization, Hamas, um, I can't remember what it's an acronym for something, but the word Hamas also in in Arabic actually means violence. Um, and, you know, one of their talking points is we're going to destroy the state of Israel. Right? I mean, this is something that for the Israelis, it's impossible to diplomatically negotiate. They say, OK, you know, even if they were and I'm not going to say that they have always been the best either. But even if they were going to say, OK, here's a way we can live together. If Hamas says, yes, but we also want to destroy you from the face of the earth, like you're just not getting anywhere with negotiation. So it's just this impossible, tragic situation. Um, and it, what the insight of Bolding, and this is not in any way to make it easier, though he does you know, talk about ways in which to approach this, is that Either you have this standoff kind of threat, counter threat situation, which apparently is what we've been having for the last decade or so before this happened. Someone decided they needed to carry through on their, their threat, Hamas in this case. Um, or you, you can get to a point, um, and the only way to get beyond that, uh, that constant threat of violence, constant reality of violence, uh, is an integrative response. Um, and that is when the warring parties uh, find a way to integrate one another into a a shared sense of community. I don't know how that ever happens uh, in the Middle East, um, but that is what has been lacking. That is what peace really is. Um, and it's more people are going to die. More innocent people are going to die in Israel, in Palestine. People who did not plan this, were not involved in this. They were just at a family, you know, event, at a festival, at a hospital, uh, at a, you know, at a school. Um, it, there's, there's nothing, there's no positive spin to put on this. Um, it's just a very, very tragic um, situation. Um, and I, I definitely, I mean, I would echo anyone who already has called for prayer, for some kind of peace. Um, I think anyone with any faith, um, certainly speaking as a Christian, I believe in miraculous 
uh, things. I, I know that the turn, the course of history has turned in surprising and unexpected ways. Um, and that, you know, at this point is, is probably, uh, the best, most realistic, uh, way forward, uh, in a positive direction is, is a literal miracle. This is a war only in the sense of sort of its complete mobilization, First, the mobilization of, of Hamas fighters um, invading the state of Israel. Uh, this is not uh, most of these most of these killings, kidnappings uh, were of civilians outside of of the Gaza Strip. Um, this was an operation that was had considerable planning that caught the Israelis by surprise. But uh, in terms of reporting from the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, it did not catch Iran by surprise. And this was in fact coordinated with Iran, who was a longtime sponsor of Hamas and this sort of terrorism. I think it's important um, – an important – sort of angle to this that we can bring is that um, when we talk about conflicts and we talk about conflicts in war in the Christian tradition and in the broader natural law tradition, there is such a thing as a just war and you have many people litigating the justness of this cause um, in very heated terms on social media, excusing the inexcusable. Now, there are many, many qualifications for a just war. Um, but this is not the, – the stated reason for Hamas for doing this in kidnapping women, children, men, military, civilian is to institute a prisoner exchange. This is a kidnapping at its heart in its stated aims, and kidnapping is not just ever under any circumstances. You also have the Iranian interest here, which is very clearly to disrupt the talks between Israel and Saudi Arabia because, as Dylan is right to point out, there is hope, and there is very clear hope in both of our lifetimes. Uh, there has been peace between Israel and Egypt, and there has been peace between Israel and Jordan. And those are models in which we can take hopefully peace with Saudi Arabia coming out of these discussions and hopefully, hopefully – and Iran's goal here is to disrupt that very process. So those previous two successes in that process also give lie to one of the mainstay talking points with regard to quote unquote peace in the Middle East, which is that the the Palestinian question needs to be addressed definitively and a solution arrived at in order for there to be a greater peace in the Middle East between Israel and some of these other uh, countries that you have noted. Um, the reality on the ground has been shown that that is not true. Now, that is not to say that there are not, you know, legitimate and colorable arguments about the plight of the Palestinians uh, that need to be heard and that uh, that should be adjudicated. But the standard talking point to say that we have to address this first before there can be, you know, any kind of a greater sense of peace in the Middle East turned out not to be true in actual form, function, and reality. Yeah. And so this is this is this is something that 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 has been resolved. Will we hope continue to be resolved? We hope that there is negotiated settlements of all of these questions. But there is no just resistance here. This is not a just war. This is not being prosecuted in a just way. What Hamas has done is monstrous and criminal, and is. We have very clear standards in the natural law tradition by which to render those judgments. This is not in any way a judgment on the plight of the Palestinian people, which is not the same thing as Hamas, as an organization, as a sort of criminal enterprise, as a – in only the loosest sense government. Um, and this is – a challenge um, 
for the world into how to respond to this sort of attack. Um, the Israeli security services have an immense task before them. What we're witnessing, I mean, we've witnessed this in a way in, from Gaza in a long time. In what, you know, Dylan has talked, you know, mentioned, you know, there's a blockade. One of the reasons for that is to prevent weapons of war from entering the Gaza Strip. It has clearly failed. Rockets continue to be manufactured in Gaza, materials for the manufacture of those rockets, for other uh, equipment uh, is getting there and is getting there through the work of states like Iran and through, you know, non-state networks that I'm sure Hamas is utilizing. And this is one of the challenges of the modern world is that these sorts of advanced weaponry um, can be anywhere and can be, um, you know, and don't necessarily require the sort of apparatus of a state, uh, formally speaking, to uh, to be controlled and to be and to be used against. Uh, civilians, let alone the armed forces of, of nations. One of the things we like to focus on here at, at Acton is the power of incentives in the things that we do. And one of the things Dan mentioned uh, bears bringing up the importance of incentives. You talked about the hostage taking and the purpose of that hostage taking. There's another example of that. Um, that I think really illustrates why it has been the policy of the United States of America to not negotiate with terrorists for so long. Um, we just completed a prisoner exchange of sorts or a, a, a hostage trading of sorts with Iran. Uh, there were people being held captive there in exchange for those people being released as negotiated by the Biden administration. Um, some people were sent back over to Iran and $6 billion that was frozen in South Korean bank accounts was once again made available to the government of Iran. Now, defenders of this policy, of this decision, will say that that money has been earmarked only for humanitarian purposes. Um, I would encourage those people uh, to either find a uh, physical copy of a dictionary or go to dictionary.com and look up the word fungible. Um, for every dollar that Iran doesn't have of their current money that they do not have to spend on humanitarian purposes, food, medicine, other forms of aid, what be it, uh, is money that they can put into other places, which means that a state with a long history of sponsoring and funding terrorism like what we saw in Israel over the weekend from Hamas, who has been supported, and again, as the Wall Street Journal uh, confirmed over the weekend, this was planned uh, with Iran's involvement, with Iran's knowledge, and with Iran's okay. Uh, I believe Iran has admitted as much as well. Well, and you have the, you know, the videos of the Iranian parliament. And this, again, gets into the other point that I want to make. The videos of them chanting death to Israel, death to America. There is no greater context in which that needs to be heard and understood. Um, it means what it means on the face to those people. We saw the death to Israel part of it play out in violence in Israel over the weekend in the actions of Hamas at the behest of the government of Iran. So there is no greater understanding we need to come to about like, well, within this context, it doesn't really mean death to Israel. No, they mean death to Israel. There, There is really no ambiguity about this. Where I want to bring it here in the United States for a moment is um, I am both disgusted and horrified by 
and thankful for the protests, quote unquote, protests that happened in major cities yesterday in support of the Palestinian cause. Because as I noted before, and I'm, I'm actually working on getting um, a really good Middle East expert on Acton line so that we can do a very basic, because I think this is one of these issues that people, there is a knowledge deficit and the complexity of it is significant. So like having somebody explain to me like I'm a fifth grader, what is going on in the Middle East? What is the history between the Israelis and the Palestinians is helpful. But we, one again can have concern for the plight of the Palestinian people who uh, one can argue are just as oppressed, if not more oppressed by the Hamas government of the Gaza Strip than they are by any of the actions of the state of Israel. Um, One can have sympathy with the plight of those people without doing what was being effectively done at those mass gatherings yesterday, which is making apologies for the kind of terrorism and barbarous behavior that Hamas terrorists perpetrated. Again, to Dan's point, this is not a traditional war. This is not people in uniforms meeting on a battlefield on opposing sides. The targets for what Hamas did over the weekend were civilians. They were families. There are videos that you can find if you wish to seek them out. And I, of course, you know, offer the caveat that they are horrifying. But in a way, it is necessary to see what transpired and what was visited upon innocent civilians in Israel over the weekend. Um, targeting elderly people. You know, these were not military targets. This again was a music festival. These were it, it was very redolent of uh the the height of ISIS where you would just see them uh pouring into these towns and just shooting at anything that moved. Um this was indiscriminate. It was violence. It was terrorism for the the purpose that terrorism exists. Um and to see so many people do the mental gymnastics that is necessary to end up on the side of excusing this in any way, shape, or form. You can be as big of an advocate for the plight of the Palestinian people as can exist. That does not necessitate you in any way to excuse the actions of a terrorist organization like Hamas, which was targeting innocent civilians in the state of Israel. Uh, You can make those, that's not even a fine distinction to make. That is a pretty clear and obvious distinction to make. And if you find yourself in the position of twisting yourself around and to saying something like, you know, the murder of 260 people at a music festival needs to be understood in the greater context of colonization and, and, and no, I just know flat out, simple, clear. No, there is no excusing what went on. Um, You are, of course, also welcome, as Dylan pointed out, one does not need to agree with every action that the state of Israel has taken. Things are going to get a lot worse after what happened over the weekend. Gaza is probably going to be leveled. Um, More innocent people are going to die. That is a terrible reality. It is one that is also aided and abetted by Hamas in that the where they position Caches of weapons, um, their own personnel uh, is often behind human shields in places like schools and hospitals so that if the Israeli government is going to strike at Hamas military targets, they're also striking at places where civilians are. That's a horrible reality. But again, to talk about things that need to be understood in context – Go back to the context of the agenda of organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah and Islamic Jihad and the government of Iran is to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And um, one can bemoan the realities of war. War is hell. But this is – one does not need to in any way begin to excuse the deliberate targeting of civilians that we saw over the weekend. And it's important to to make that distinction too, um, because you know Hamas certainly wants you to think that they are Palestine. Um, they speak and act for all Palestinians. Um, they are an Islamist organization. There are there's a significant Christian minority in Palestine. I doubt they they feel like Hamas speaks for them. Um, 
it's you know it's the same sort of thing. Um, although again, I'm as I as I already mentioned, I'm you know pretty sympathetic to the terrible position of uh, Israel's in. Um, people will very often con- conflate the Israeli government with the Israeli people or even the Jewish people, and it leads to some very 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 terrible uh, thoughts and attitudes, um, which are not at all justifiable or excusable. It is the same thing um, with Hamas. I. I I get where people are going. I agree with you. I li- I'm so happy we live in a free country where people can go out and protest, uh, I think, very misguidedly um, and safely and freely do that and assemble peacefully. Um, but they are wrong. <laughs> um, and and it would be great if there were more nuance um, in these discussions. As you mentioned, it, it is so complicated. The history goes back. I mean, literally millennia, if you really want to go back, but, you know, if you want to dig that far, but at least... 20th century, um, you have to cover that to have any understanding of what's going on, which means there are there are literally multiple generations of people living in Gaza, in Palestine, living in Israel, who, you know, now second, third generation, this has been their whole life and their whole reality. Um, that is how deep the history goes. And it's something that is, is, again, I don't think it's impossible. I think it is something people ought to hope and pray for peace in the Middle East, but it, it is something that is very hard to see. How do you ever get there? One needs to now? understand, too, the reason for the existence of the state of Israel, which is to provide a safe haven for the Jewish people uh, against attempts at pogroms like what we saw over the weekend. Um, that is really the reason for the existence of the state of Israel. So one one should expect them to defend themselves in such a manner, considering their whole reason for existence. There is, and maybe this is the way to think about this in terms of, 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 of larger purposes and plans for a very long time the Palestinian people have been instrumentalized by Islamist anti-Zionists and weaponized as a cause, as a pretext for the destruction of Israel and for the Jewish people. There is in the world an insidious Islamist-inflected anti-Semitism. Now, there are many strains of anti-Semitism. They are all horrific. But many mansion, uh, many rooms in that mansion. Yeah. Yes, but I mean, this is this is, you know, when you talk about interests, when you talk about oh, you know, what does Hamas intend to get out of this? I mean, there's there's a superficial pretext of a potential uh, uh, hostage prisoner exchange, which, to my mind at this point seems completely off the table with the amount of violence and destruction visited. Um, there's that, but then there's also, there's also the fact that, you know, Hamas itself and Eric alluded to this is, is the Gaza strip is just a pawn in this larger struggle. And it, it is, a, it is an ideologically consuming, struggle rooted in a sort of virulent anti-Semitism and with a corruption of, of Islam itself that animates this ideology. This is just the sort of ideolo- destructive ideology that you had in international communism, that you had in Nazism and fascism in Europe in the last century, that um, unleashes madness on a scale that um, is unintelligible in terms of interests um, because it's just all-consuming and disordered. And this is why you have a sort of total disregard for natural law, for conflict, for justice in conflict. even even in the realm of, of 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 conflict itself, these things get thrown out, um, and it's just uh, you know it's an enduring ideological pathology that um, you know uh, we can hope and pray runs its course, but these things um, 
are very, very difficult. Um, difficult to move. You know, when that fire gets a hold and consumes the minds of men, it is a very, very difficult thing to extinguish. Yeah, I think it's it's uh, along those lines. We we see the same sort of discussions happening uh, after mass shootings in the United States, uh, where innocent people are just senselessly murdered. Um, the, we're t- what we're talking about is an unjustifiable evil here, and by definition, at least within the Christian tradition, evil is is not anything. It is the privation of good, the privation of truth and reason. There is no explanation for it, and it is a temptation because we want the world to make sense, especially at times like this, to try to reason some narrative in which, oh, here's why this all makes sense, when I think the the only way to move forward is to say this just doesn't make sense. This is not how it ought to be. This is, in fact, fundamentally irrational. Um, and what we need is uh, a reorientation, a repentance, a turning around uh, towards goodness and truth and reason uh, where it has been absent for far too long. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look right now in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find our show. I again want to encourage you to subscribe to our magazine, Religion and Liberty, where you can read not only Rachel Ferguson's great essay that we discussed today, but other great pieces by Marvin Alasky, Michael Matheson Miller, Philip Booth, and many more. Only $29.99 will get you four issues of our beautiful magazine in your mailbox four times a year. Look in the show notes for this episode for a link to subscribe. Thanks to Dan, thanks to Dylan, and a big thanks to Rachel Ferguson. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.